We are, uh, we are just at the beginning of our study of the Gospel of Luke, which we're calling the heart of God, the heart of God in the Gospel of Luke. And this morning we will be in Luke chapter 3. Uh, if you remember I said last week, we're going to save chapters, most of chapters 1 and 2 for Advent, for Christmas, come back to that story of Jesus' birth. Uh, this is not the main point of today's sermon, but one of the things that I would like to convince you of today is that what we're doing right now is literally the most important thing happening in our world. And not just specifically Christ Fellowship, but churches faithfully preaching, teaching, hearing the gospel, the word of God, there is literally nothing more important that we could be doing right now. There is nothing more worthy of our time than this. Being here, showing up, hearing the word, teaching the word, there's, there is literally nothing more crucial to the transformation of lives and communities than this. And I know that's a big, bold statement, but I believe that Luke wants to convince us that that's true. Now, among other things, there's some other things that we're going to see in this text, but I want us to start there. Okay, so Luke chapter 1, or chapter 3, verse 1, it says this. In the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar... Pontius Pilate being governor of Judea, and Herod being tetrarch of Galilee, his brother Philip, tetrarch of the region of Iturea and Trachonitis, and Lysanias, tetrarch of Abilene. Bunch of hard words there. Verse 2, During the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas, the word of God came to John, the son of Zechariah, in the wilderness. Okay, there are at least two reasons why Luke gives us the names of all these important men and the regions where they governed. One of them is simply to establish the context that what we're about to read is real historical narrative. This actually happened this story has a date. It has a place. It has a context. This was a real event. That's the first thing that Luke is saying. But second, Luke wants to show that the most important thing happening in the world at that time did not have anything to do with the Romans or the Jewish leaders or their high priests the most significant thing in the world at that time when those men in power were, were there is the word of God coming to John in the wilderness. That's, that's why he's saying it this way. So he's all these great men and these powerful players, this is when this happened. But what they were doing was really not what I want to talk about. I want to tell you about the word of God coming to John in the wilderness. Verse 3. 
And he went into all the region around the Jordan, proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. Verse 4, as it is written in the book of the words of Isaiah the prophet, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. Every valley shall be filled. Every mountain and hill shall be made low. The crooked shall become straight, and the rough places shall become level ways, and all flesh shall see the salvation of God. So Luke introduces John as the prophet of prophets. John preached the warning of judgment and the need for repentance which makes him just like all the other Old Testament prophets. That's what they did. They talked about coming judgment. They talked about Israel's need for repentance. But there was a significant difference between John and all those other prophets. Almost no one listened to the Old Testament prophets until it was too late, until after the judgment had come. But John's ministry was different. We find out that crowds of people were coming and listening and responding to John's ministry. And that had to be the work of God because listen to how John preached. Verse 7, He said therefore to the crowds that came out to be baptized by him, You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Now, how's that for a sermon introduction, right? I mean, it's the first words out of John's mouth. What are you snakes doing here? That's what he said to his audience. And people kept showing up. Verse 8, Bear fruits in keeping with repentance. And do not begin to say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Wow. Verse 9, Even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Okay, y'all, there is nothing careful or winsome about this sermon, right? I mean, he's not contextualizing and softening the message so that they can... I mean, this is not a seeker-sensitive preacher, is it? I mean, do you think you're safe from God because you're Jewish? Think again, people. Repent or burn. I mean, that's literally what he's preaching. Verse 10. And the crowds asked him, what then shall we do? Y'all, this is notice that people are actually responding to this message. It's bringing conviction. They have a desire for change, right? So maybe maybe we don't need smoke machines and light shows to get people to respond to our preaching. Maybe maybe we just need to talk more about sin and judgment. I don't know. What should we do, they ask. In other words, how do we bear fruit in keeping with repentance? Because 
We don't want to be the ones, John. We don't want to be the ones who are cut down and thrown into the fire. And so John's preaching this moment. He was, he was giving them a moment of crisis to respond to. Verse 11. And John answered them, Whoever has two tunics is to share with him who has none. And whoever has food is to do likewise. Okay, so John, repent or burn the people. What should we do? His answer, care for the poor. That's how John replies. Care for the poor. Verse 12, tax collectors also came to be baptized and said to him, Teacher, what shall we do? And he said to them, Collect no more than you're authorized to do. Now this is important because tax collectors, you may know this, were hated by everyone because everyone knew they were taking extra money for themselves when they collected taxes. They would say, you know, the Romans would say, collect 10, and they'd say, you owe me 12, and then they'd pocket two, right? And they were doing this, and yet they were protected by the Romans. So nobody could do anything about it. And this is where we begin to see John's purpose. I believe what Luke is telling us is that John was sent by God to disrupt the social order. And it's right there in the prophecy from Isaiah, back in verse 5, right? Every valley will be filled, every mountain will be laid low, the crooked path made straight, the rough made level. What's he saying? He's saying that John's purpose was to prepare the world for Jesus by disrupting the social order. So much so that even the soldiers are coming to hear John. Verse uh, 14, Soldiers also asked him, And we, what shall we do? And John said to them, Do not extort money from anyone by threats or by false accusation, and be content with your wages. Okay, so, so the police, he's telling them, like, don't use your power to hurt people, to take from them. And that sounds like a fairly simple idea to us, right? Care for your neighbors. Don't take advantage of people. Don't abuse your power. We understand this as modern Westerners. But you have to understand that in the context of ancient empires, this teaching was really revolutionary. And it shows us the heart of God. So any ideas that you were could take from this to apply to modern society and culture, you understand this came from Christianity. We didn't make this up. Humans didn't naturally fall into this. What we naturally fell into is people abusing power and taking advantage of the poor. So any good ideas that you get, from this is coming from Christianity, okay? The most important thing happening in the Roman Empire had nothing to do with the emperors or the governors or the tetrarchs. It was the ministry of a man wearing camel hair telling people to repent and care for the poor. Nobody else was saying stuff like this. And John was applying 
the Word of God that was already there. This wasn't new. He was saying, this is what God's always been telling you to do. He was saying it in such a way that the social order was disrupted, not by the government, okay? So he's not telling the government to do it. He's, he's telling sinners to repent and choose to love their neighbor. You see that? Verse 15. As the people were in expectation and all were questioning in their hearts concerning John, whether he might be the Christ, John answered them all saying, I baptize you with water, but he who is mightier than I is coming, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand to clear his threshing floor and to gather the wheat into his barn, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. Now, of course, he's talking about Jesus, the one who's coming. But notice how John describes Jesus. John emphasizes the judgment of the Messiah. What's interesting is if you read verse 17 carefully, it shows us that the judgment of the Messiah has already been made. And all that's left is for Him to do the gathering. He's going to gather the wheat the good harvest into the barn and the stuff that you don't need from the heads of like that the, the chaff he calls it that they they separate it was worthless he's saying I'm gonna clear the room weed into the barn chaff into the fire and this is how John introduces Jesus And I want you to know that that's actually how Jesus describes his own ministry later in Luke chapter 12. And I want to read this because it's it's an important connection. Luke 12, beginning in verse 49. Jesus says, I came to cast fire on the earth and would that it were already kindled. I have a baptism to be baptized with and how great is my distress until it is accomplished. Do you think that I have come to give peace on earth? No, I tell you, but rather division. From now on in one house there will be five divided, three against two, and two against three. They will be divided, father against son, and son against father, mother against daughter, and daughter against mother, mother mother-in-law against her daughter-in-law, and daughter-in-law against mother-in-law, right? Okay, that is a somewhat disturbing and cryptic message from Jesus. You don't hear a lot of sermons on that teaching, do you? I would wager that a lot of people preaching through Luke would love to skip that because there's so many other stories of compassion and kindness and miracles and healing, right? What does Jesus mean? Right? He mentions fire in verse 49. 
He says he's going to divide families. What's he saying? He's saying, I came to completely disrupt the social order. You see the link between what he's doing and what John was doing. And all of this confirms what John said about Jesus in Luke 3. Jesus came with a a mission far greater than John's, and it's a mission that comes with much greater consequences. So this is a good time for us to go ahead and finish our text, and then we're going to tie all this together afterwards. Okay, so before I read verse 18, John was not a threat to the Roman governors because... What he was teaching actually promoted law and order. They didn't have a problem with what John was saying. He was also not a threat to the Jewish priest because he was saying things that at least on the surface they claimed to care about. They couldn't publicly disagree with him. But John's ministry was a threat to someone, and I want you to see who that was. Verse 18. So with many other exhortations, he preached good news to the people But Herod, the Tetrarch, who had been reproved by him for Herodias, his brother's wife, if you don't know the story, that he took his brother's wife, okay, and for all the evil things, the other evil things that Herod had done, added this to them all that he locked up John in prison. So John's preaching about judgment and repentance was a threat specifically to Herod because John publicly rebuked Herod for incest and adultery. And Herod responded by putting John in prison and then later beheading him at his wife's request. And so I think what, what the reason Luke includes this now is to tell us this final purpose of John was to expose a false king, a king of unrighteousness. And by exposing Herod as the false king of the Jews, John was preparing the way for Jesus, who was the true king of righteousness. Okay? So now let's tie all this together. Where do we see the heart of God in this story? Well, we certainly see it in His concern for the poor. That's clear. God is consistently, from cover to cover in the Bible, concerned with those who are marginalized, who are oppressed, who have been um, neglected by society. That is clear. It's clear here as well. But we also see already in the Gospel of Luke, he's starting to show us our need for grace and God's provision of grace. It would be easy for us to read this story and to focus on the fruit of repentance that's demanded by John. But again, what was God's purpose in John's ministry? His purpose was to disrupt the social order in, in so that he could prepare the world for the one who would come and not just disrupt the social order, but disrupt people's hearts. 
And this may be difficult for us to sort of understand, so let me try better. John leveled the field. He showed us that no one deserves to escape the wrath of God. Not even the privileged among us. Not even the most powerful among us. Not even the best among us. Not even the preacher. And where do I get that? Well, John is probably, easily, I think, the second most righteous person in the story. Second only to Jesus. But even John knew that he was not worthy even to untie the sandals of Jesus. And so what's the point? The point is that people that we think are important, the people that we think deserve our praise, the people we think are the best among us, when we stand in judgment before God Almighty, literally none of us deserves His favor. No one. Now this is early theology, okay? So when you get in the Gospels, a lot of this gets unpacked and worked out in the letters that follow. But it starts here. He's teaching that when we stand in judgment before God Almighty, all of us fall short of where we should be. None of us has earned a place with the Father. And what is it that separates the saved from the unsaved in the teaching of John? He clearly told us in verse 16, it's nothing that we do. Now, he gave them the admonition, I want you to go and care for the poor, and I want you to stop sinning against people, love your neighbor. But he also says very clearly in verse 16, it's actually not anything that we do. In fact, John even recognized that his own ministry was insufficient. See, if you remember, we talked about the law very often in in our study of Galatians. Just like the law, John's message was to expose sin, but it could not change people's hearts. In many ways, John is the last great Old Testament preacher basically saying, you've misapplied the law. This is what God actually wants from you, and this is where you're sinning, and this is where you need to repent. But that message alone cannot change anyone's heart. It exposes their heart. It prepares them for Jesus. What he says in verse 16, if you remember, is that we need the work of Jesus to baptize us with the Holy Spirit. That is what separates. That is the only thing. But what did he say? What did Jesus say about himself in Luke 12? He said, first, I've come to baptize, but I myself must endure a baptism. What's he talking about? He's talking about being baptized 
with God's wrath for our sin. We think of baptism as being washed clean of sin, right? The baptism that Jesus endured was being covered in God's wrath for our sin. Jesus Jesus took our punishment. That's what we believe as Christians. And there are hints of this even in John's sermon, right? So John told the crowds that people with two cloaks should share with him who has none. And perhaps some of them did it, and and absolutely they should, and this is good advice, right? But that's not what saves us. What saves us is what that action represents. What saves us is Jesus Christ who took off His cloak of righteousness and gave it to people who had none to offer God. And so right there in that admonition is the Gospel. Now I want you to remember, Luke wrote this Gospel according to himself in in chapter 1. He says, I'm writing this for a specific person that they may have certainty in what they've been taught. So if you take that and you apply it, he's saying, I'm writing this for the outsider, I'm writing it for those who doubt, and maybe that's you, okay? You struggle with what the Bible teaches and whether or not it's accurate or truthful. My question is, do you see the the heart of God here? You think about history and, and, you know, however you view the history of the world and civilization and the ideas and the thoughts and and how we govern people and all those things, do you see the heart of God, His concern for people being exploited by the rich and the powerful and that God cares about that? And that anybody today who cares about that is getting it from him. It's not just, you're not making it up or coming up with it from something. You certainly didn't get it from Marx or Nietzsche or whoever else, right? This is coming from Christianity, ultimately. But do you see that even the prophet of God doesn't consider himself worthy? are you beginning to see that only Jesus is worthy? That's what Luke is saying to us, that the, that the proud among us need to be humbled. That we are unclean and lost and facing great danger from God apart from Christ. And what's amazing to me is that even Herod was given the opportunity to repent. Now we missed that, but if you read it carefully, even Herod was given the opportunity to repent. John preached to him too. Gave him a moment to see his sin, to repent from it. Otherwise, John wouldn't have been killed, right? And what did Herod do? He protected his sin. He killed the messenger. Now, before you judge him, if we're honest, if we understand what the Bible teaches, you know this is what the whole world would do. 
What Herod did to John is what we did to Jesus. As we study the Gospel of Luke, we're going to watch Jesus expose people's sin, call them to repentance, and then we're going to watch the people crucify Him. And y'all, that's what it means to be lost. But as Isaiah said, all flesh will see the salvation of God. Let's pray. Gracious Father in heaven, we confess that we really only see a little bit of the ways in which we have wronged you. There's so much more under the surface that we don't yet see. Even those of us who have believed in Jesus our entire lives, there, there are things that, that we're unwilling to admit in our pride. and We would be closer, we would understand more of your heart for us if we would just humble ourselves and repent of those things in as much as your Holy Spirit is showing them to us. And so we pray that you would work to expose us, help us to see your holiness, but meet us in that moment, not just with judgment, but with forgiveness, and help us to see Christ offering us the cloak of righteousness that we put on, not because we've earned it, but because you've given it freely. And Father, I pray specifically for those who are doubting this morning, who perhaps were taught these things and at some point have rejected them. I pray that you would move in their hearts to re-engage with your gospel. And to reconsider the things that they were taught. And I pray that in studying the Gospel of Luke, they might find certainty. You would do the work that only you can do in their hearts. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.